This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Doma Media. Thank you, Yola Tango, as always, for the intro music. Um, we have a celebratory episode, the 250th episode of the DC Show. Unbelievable. With the podfather himself, Bill Simmons. Um, me just saying whatever I just said was an impossibility when we were practicing the podcast in Bill's office at Sunset Gower. Many well, I don't know how many years ago. Bill, remember how terrible I was? It was impossible. Those were the days, right? When we could hang out in an office and like spitball and workshop and work on stuff and get reps. And now I've seen you like twice in the last year. And I know. I don't know. We, we wouldn't be able to do that on the Zoom. It, you just needed to get out of your own head with the intro. You were just trying to yeah. be perfect. And then all of a sudden, eight episodes in, nine episodes in, whatever it is, I was listening to one. I was like, oh, he gets it now. And then I didn't have to worry about this anymore. <laughs> but it was good to see Bill recently. We, we workshopped some ideas for the podcast and a lot of the growth that we have in store. Yeah. You got me food. I yeah. got, I got to hang out with Hugo. Hugo loves me. All little kids and dogs love me. I don't know why. I don't know. I think it's my big saucer eyes. I think there's a safety to them. I don't understand it. Well, I think for, for, for one, I don't think people realize just how tall you are. You're sneaky tall, right? And I think for Hugo, that was like, wow, this guy's not only white, one of the three white people I've seen in my life, but this fucking yeah. guy's really tall and right. a commanding presence. And I think you had Hugo's attention right off the bat. Yeah, Stinky Tall. I, I'm not a starter on the Sneaky Tall All-Stars, but I'm definitely like coming off the bench and I can hit a couple threes. You, So you have Hugo. I have Murph, our, our bizarre golden retriever. Babies and dogs, I think, are similar. Like they read facial expressions. You know, they're playing off whoever is in the room and you put a mask on somebody and now they can only kind of read eyes and that's it, which, which kind of sucks. Yeah, we're, we're, you know, the one thing we were talking to our pediatrician is she was saying that this generation of kids that were born before the pandemic, like a year before or like right during, are going to have like the highest um, sort of English comprehension, like the language. They, they've been only speaking to adults. Like Hugo speaks, mm. you know, articulates words in ways that I never thought was possible at that age. And I don't think it's anything that he's super special. He just, he hasn't really spoken to kids. He's only been talking to adults for like two and a half years. So. 
Yeah, he doesn't have those idiotic kid conversations where they're just kind of speaking in grunts. I like whatever you're doing with your Zoom, by the way. You look like Marlon Brando and Superman or something. It's just like a head, <laughs> I head know, with a black background. <laughs> I, I, I try to move around in my seat to no, give like the motion the sensor. Way. I felt like I know. it was like that high-tech special effects or something. Because uh, it turns off all the time. But, you know, mm. we could talk about Hugo all day long. Clearly, people like him more than me. The other person in my life that people always ask me about is Bill Simmons. When we first started this podcast, it wasn't um, anything like what we're doing today. It was, I don't even know the idea for it, or even if I thought I was going to be good at it, but it was more going to be a pre-opening diaries to document the opening of our Los Angeles restaurant, Major Domo. Again, like I never thought there would be 250 episodes later where we would still be doing a podcast. I thought it was going to be like a, 12 to 24 episode type of thing, but here we are. I didn't tell you this, but I totally thought we'd get to 250 episodes. So I'm not surprised. <laughs> I don't know why. I think with pers- with podcasts, the, the ones that tend to work, especially if they're built around a personality or people that are fun to talk to, even if you weren't doing a podcast, but then people also get that shtick's the wrong word, but you have to like jazz yourself up a tiny bit when you're doing a pod, right? It's you. It's completely authentic. But you also have to be the more entertaining version of you. You can't be like the somber you. You can't be the, you know, uh, tiptoeing you. You just got to have some takes and some thoughts and you got to be able to interact and play off people, which is like every dinner we've ever had. We have, right. We've had dinners that, four-hour dinners. We've had dinners where we've had Literally hour long arguments about uh, entertainer who I won't name, where it was like it would have been the greatest episode of a Netflix show ever. Like really, like people getting really upset about the dumbest topics. But that's that's what makes for a good podcast. Well, I, I'm glad and I'm honored that you've supported me throughout all this time. But uh, I just, you know, what I what I've always marveled at and what I want to get better at was what you're able to do. And I remember you telling me this few years back, because I can't remember who it was, whether Stephen A. Smith or somebody, where you're like, you were marveling in that they could speak to a microphone by themselves for two to three hours. It's one of the hardest skills. I didn't understand what you're saying. Now I get it. To be able to just talk to a microphone with no one else around, to yourself really, is so hard. Why? That's probably one of the hardest skill sets I think that anybody can learn how to do. Do you think you're born with that, or is that the 10,000 hours? I think that's 10,000 hours because I couldn't really do it until 2015, 16 range. And even now I feel like, um, I still feel like I can get a tiny bit better at it. I look at somebody like Rosillo. Rosillo can just, he can prepare ahead of time and he can bang out like 15, 16 minutes straight. Kellerman has it. And that's why I thought first take was so much better when it was Kellerman and Stephen A because they were kind of equals, but they could exchange these three minute monologues that are really hard to do. So it's like, you know, you can you do 20 minutes by yourself? Yeah, it's going to be a little meandering. The three-minute ones are hard, too. And that, that's when you watch on TV, somebody that can talk for three minutes really intelligently and bring it, bring the point to a specific direction and then a conclusion, that's also really hard. I think it's all 10,000 hours. I think very few people are born with that skill. Another thing that I've, I've, I've marveled at and I try to emulate, mainly because I'm lazy, but I feel like you don't have to do it is you don't take any notes. You don't have any notes in front of you. And I don't think people understand how difficult that is to do as well. When you're rattling off facts on your podcast about, you know, a 30, 20, 20 or whatever category you're talking about, 
that's all coming from the top of your head. Yeah. I don't know how you do that. That's like, you're like savant rain man a little bit when it comes to sports statistics. That's a little preparation and it's a little rain manny because like I had Tom Hanks on, I had a really good podcast with Tom Hanks. So that was one of the best ones I did this year because he was such a good guest. But I also knew everything about his career instinctively. I didn't have to like look at a piece of paper and I didn't have to have an outline for it. And I knew like I could wing it with Tom Hanks, steer him toward movies and just get him to tell stories about the movies, which he didn't know I was going to do, but he was able to do it. And then I had, because I knew so much about his career, I could just kind of push in and nudge him and I could remember stuff. And that's why I thought that was a really good pod. At the same time, like I can't remember what we did for my son's fifth birthday party. So it's like, it's like, I kind of wish all the information in my head could be used for a better purpose, but it is what it is. Some people just remember certain things for whatever reason. I can remember all this sports, pop culture, history stuff, things like that. And then things that happened in my own life. I always say when I get together, my friends from college, like my buddy Jacko, who has like an amazing recall, who's been on my pod a bunch of times. He'll always remember this. I remember junior year, we went to that party and that guy threw up on my shoe and I'll be like, no, I actually... I don't remember. I wish I wish I had that memory. So I don't, I almost feel like your brain's a nightclub and it remembers what it wants to remember. And for some reason, mine gravitates toward dumb shit. I mean, but you, it's amazing how you recall that because I've done other podcasts and I see other people on the ringer and they have tons of notes and they're able to integrate it in a seamless way. But again, I, I, I that's, I've never podcasted before. I never saw anyone podcast. I was never even on a podcast before, you know, I yeah, but that, but, yours. but but you've had hundreds and hundreds of dinners with people, and you know how to play off somebody, and that's what a podcast is, and that's why I it took me probably two years to get I think like reasonably good at my podcast. By two thousand nine, I felt like all right, I might be good at this. But the biggest thing was not to have the notes, and when I did the interviews with the guests, to really not feel like they felt like I was looking at a notepad or following an outline. Cause that's what I was get annoyed by some interviewers out there where I feel like they have the guest on and then they're just trying to structure the guest into the podcast they or the interview they've already done in their head. Howard Stern does this. So I think has had some good interviews, but it's also an outline that he's following and he's trying to shove people into the outline. I I'm much more, I, I try to do not too much research Cause I try to discover stuff as I'm doing it. Cause I like, so it's more of a conversation. Like if you and I went to dinner with some celebrity we've never met and we were eating, we would just start asking them questions. Right. And sometimes we wouldn't know the answers, but that would, would be one of the fun things about the dinner. So I, that's my style for it. Other people have different styles and I don't think there's a right answer for it, but you're probably more closer to my style of like, kind of just yeah. trusting that you can play off the person. And that's what I've always wanted to have on this podcast. Uh, and we've had that with, you know, whether it's Chris or now Noel, just talking. I, I need to talk to somebody and it's a little bit easier to talk to people that I know to have a conversation. I haven't reached a level where I can just you know, talk by myself. But you brought up a point of just having a dinner conversation. And that's what I've always sort of wanted to have where you're like shooting the shit, trying to make fun of somebody. And that's what a lot of our dinners are about. And I saw this recent Curb Your Enthusiasm episode where Larry's at dinner at the uh, Jeff's house. The middle, right? I was watching that. And I was like, this is something that Bill and I would talk about. In fact, when we had dinner at Parks Barbecue, it was like one of the first dinners that anyone had when LA opened up again. You, you, you were like, 
you can only have, uh, this is too many people. We have eight people, right? Eight's too You're many. Right? It's, it's, it's two it's separate conversations. <laughs> That's it's what gotta I was be, like. It's got to be six max. Six, you can bring everyone in. Major Domo has the best table for this. It's got this round table that's not too, it's not too kind of wide. It's in the back where everybody's around and you still feel like the the person who's the furthest away from you isn't far away. So it's one conversation. Everybody's going. It doesn't break off. And I always feel like it's, I always said this about studio shows. Studio shows, the best ones are usually three people. And the best dinners are usually three people or four, if you have the right four people. Sometimes if it's four and you have, and somebody can knock it sideways, which is exactly the same with studio shows. But if you have a five-person dinner or a five-person studio show, it can go sideways really quick. Somebody can have too high of a usage rate. Two people can break off into their own conversation. The table's always weird. It's like two and two, and then there's that one guy at the head. And the, the geometry just doesn't work. But that major domo six-person table that you should name that table. That should be like the conversation table. It should be a like conversation <laughs> nirvana. Or so should have a little plaque on it. So do you have some rules for dining? Like, I feel like no more than six. Do you have to know? You sort of need to know who's going to be the point guard in the conversation, right? To facilitate. When we do, when we do the dinner with, when it's you and me and, and Chen and Cho and Steve and Yang, there, there's like multiple multi-position guys at that table. There's a lot of people can handle the ball. You can call plays for different people. <laughs> Cho is perfect. Cho doesn't have a high usage rate, but will come in hot and hit three threes and get mad at somebody <laughs> and then not say anything for an hour. Like th- that's, that's a pretty unique six. I think. I think, we, I think that is a very strong dinner conversation. I put that dinner group with Bill being the token white guy, right? It's yeah. the reversal roles as strong as any table of six out there in the world. I really believe that. It's as eclectic a group as you can have, and everyone can pass the ball and dribble the ball and play defense. Well, and people disagree, and then Cho is the wild card of just throwing a, it's like throwing a chainsaw in a hot tub twice twice a night, where it's just, water's just getting sprayed everywhere. And we're eating. Which is which is the other piece, and then Chen's always got something going on, and that it's a good mix of personal and professional, but then also you know fun arguments. I listen. One of the big influences on when I was trying to figure out what my podcast was was the was the Favreau show, and ironically, he came to one of our dinners, and I think we had too many people, so it, it broke off into different convos. But I always thought that show was fantastic. Like there were a couple that were just lights out awesome where people got had too much too much to drink they started telling stories and there was a vibe to it that was really cool you just wanted to be at the table and i think podcasts have captured a little bit of that where it's like if you're doing the right kind of podcast people feel like they're at the table with you even though they're not that's where you want to be i think we got to bring that show back and if it's not favreau doing it himself we got to do some version of that that could be a visual podcast. I mean, that would be so easy to do. That's my dream would be the DC show to be that like once we, a week. We have the idea where well, we have a couple different ideas for it. I, the one thing with that show that was always weird was the eating. Watching yeah. people eat is rough. So they would have to edit it a certain way. But I think the way that our dinners go, where it's like the, we're literally there for four hours 
that lends itself to a really nicely edited, I would say. Hey, it is something we should experiment with. Let's do let's it. Let's just, let's just agree right, let's just to do, do it. it. All right, done, done. Um, you know, one of the things that happened in 2018, I mean, the world, as we were already talked about, was a very different place. But, like, the food trends were su- super different. You know, what we cooked at Major Dome back then, regardless of the table, has sort of remained the same. But when I think about where things are going to go for the next 250 episodes, I don't know what the hell we're going to talk about food-wise. It's a dangerous time because of how hard it is to just start a restaurant right now. Right. And that was like some of the most interesting conversations you were having that first year or so was, you know, this this chef that you really liked that nobody ever heard of or this restaurant you'd been to that you were just thrilled because they were doing this. And I'm worried about that because you see it. You were the one telling me initially... And one of the reasons you want to move to LA was the LA food scene, how incredible it was and how ahead of the curve it was in so many different ways. And I could feel it. And you were telling me some of the restaurants to go to, I got more into it. I was trying different things. A lot of them are gone, you know, and the bigger ones have survived. In some cases, the bigger ones are stronger than ever. Right. But the little, the little, if this restaurant doesn't work, I have no restaurant kind of restaurants. Yeah. Those are in trouble. And like, think about you with your first restaurant. If you were trying to open that in 2021, like what, would you be successful? I don't know. Absolutely not. I, right place, right time. I, I, I certainly would not be as successful. I, I know that to be true. And I think that's sort of what I'm trying to figure out too, is we've done 250 episodes of a variety of things, from food topics and guests, so on and so forth. But I always try to use what you guys have done all the way back at Grantland to here today at the Ringer as like a template because you've used sports as a jumping off point to talk about cultural things and things that people that make people happy, you know, and, and I, I think we're still trying to figure out what that is in the food world. It seems way more polarizing than it was four years ago. And then you think like, you know, somebody like Tony, what what would Tony be like in 2021? What would Tony... 20 years ago coming up, can that person exist in the same way in 2021? Or is he being judged by a completely different lens for what he's trying to do? And it would it constantly be, well, I, you only did shows about this, this, and this. What about these people? And it seems like that's been part of the problem with all the people that kind of talk about food and are kind of the trendsetters for what's happening is there's this weird backlash to it that I don't fully understand. I was thinking about it when I saw the Tony doc, which I know meant a lot to you and your friend did it. And obviously you were close with Tony, but what he meant to the food community, I think was really unusual. And I don't, nobody's filled that void, which is why I think people still talk about him the way they do. He was so unusual in so many ways, but kind of everybody was on his side or most people on his side. And I don't, can that even exist anymore? One of the things about Tony was he was like the, the arbiter of what was good or bad. He was like the last, he could like close a subject. You know what I mean? We don't have to talk about this anymore. We don't have that closer anymore, that anchor. So no, it's not necessarily free for all, but my, my gut is telling me that you're going to have somebody like Tony broken up into like 15. It's almost like Moneyball. You're going to have three players to create Jason Giambi. And I think that's what, what the future is for food, or at least talking about food, especially on a podcast. So I, I don't know. You're right. Things are more polarizing than ever before. And I think in some way for us on this show, it's to do it where food is like 
practical and things that you're going to use and things that you didn't know. No, Almost- but you, you're, you're good on the trend stuff too. And I think that's, don't sell yourself short on that. Like where things are going, something interesting, some, some twist on something that we were already doing. Like, I'll give you an example. I had this um, little party for my wife last month and somebody came and they made pizzas as part of the party and they brought this oven. It was like, what is it? Uni? Is that, uni, is that yeah. an oven? Yeah. This makeshift uni oven that they just made these awesome pizzas out of. And I was like, this is how easy it would be to be able to make awesome pizzas. I just need to get this oven and I just need to spend money on the dough and think about how, and then I can have pizzas that taste this good. I could do this on my own. That kind of stuff is still going to win this decade. The, the ability, especially as people are home more and more, how do you make good food that is just better than what we're, we were used to, you know, I'm a little older than you, but we're around the same age. Just the, the concept of like four decades ago, I was eating Stouffer's French bread pizzas. Right. And now I could make an awesome pizza for myself and I don't even know how to cook. Where is that going and how does the pandemic tie into that? I think is going to be a really interesting thing for the next couple of years. But also talking about pizza ovens in a way that isn't like boring and, and something that's useful. It's again, taking a page out of what you've done is, is you talk about sports and the takes after a game or NBA final series and you're trying to make people find like their viewpoints in you or like relate something that they're thinking about being like, Oh yeah, that is what happened. And I want to do that for food. And I, that's to me, like, I don't want to necessarily trace the food trends like we used to do. We're still right. going to talk about this stuff, but I'm really trying to tunnel down this road of if we were talking about a pizza oven, the moments where it'd be great for you to actually have a uni pizza oven or do you want to invest in a pizza oven because you're never going to use it again? Because most people I think that have a pizza oven never actually use the pizza. Right. It's like getting right? a smoker. Right. Actually, I think I would use a smoker quite a bit. Well, but. some people like Jimmy got me a smoker for my birthday and I, I tried to use it three times and I almost like burned down our entire neighborhood. And then anytime we used it, I had to have like some people are just bad at stuff. I'm, I'm one of them, like stuff with fire and things like that. Usually my wife is the one that's doing it. But I do wonder like with, you know, as we, we're about to hit year three of the pandemic, which would be three months from now, which is a little frightening. I do wonder if it's stuff like, hey, maybe I'll make my own sushi. All right, how do I do that? Is that like, are people just going to be a higher end version of making your own food combined with the Postmates stuff? And then people feel less of a need to go to restaurants, which I think would be the scary part of that. I, I don't know. And that's what I'm still trying to, to, to crack that code is, you know, at least with sports, it's visual and there's something that people can react to. You know, people eat every day, but they're not eating the same thing. So, you know, we're still trying to figure out how to make that useful for everybody. So well, here, here's a good example. Sw- going to sports. Attendance is down for basketball. I, I don't, I haven't checked hockey, but I assume it's the same thing. And I, we've noticed it because I share the Clipper tickets with Mike Tolan. I haven't gone to a game yet. We usually just, you know, we will sell games online. We're not trying to make money on them. We're just trying to get rid of the tickets. And it's so hard to get rid of tickets this year. And we were talking about it two days ago because really the only games you can even get over face value for the Golden State and the Lakers. But there's games where it's like, 
let's say your tickets are a hundred dollars. You're looking at like $30 if the Pelicans are in town. And part of the reason is it's a real pain in the ass to go to the games now because it takes so long to get in, right? You got to drive in, you got to park. It takes you like 25 minutes, half hour just to get in the game. You get in, you got to wear a mask. The game's three hours. Now you got to get out. It's like a, like a four and a half, five hour commitment. And people would just rather stay at home and watch the game. And on top of it, they're in the arena wearing a mask. Like, what's fun about that? It made me wonder, like, what happens to season tickets over the next five years? And I remember there was, I I think I even wrote about this in the late 2000s. There was a moment where attendance was going down. It was like, what's going to happen here? And the league was really worried about it. And that was what one of the reasons we ended up having the lockout in 2011, the NBA, was they were so scared of the attendance. They didn't realize all the TV money was coming. It was going to, you know, soften it. But if I don't have the need to get season tickets, which I don't think I do, I actually think I might give up the Clipper tickets this year. It's like, I, anytime I want to go to a game, we, you could just go online two hours before and get tickets. So what's the point of having season tickets? So what does that do to all these sports? If everybody kind of looks at each other and goes, why do we need season tickets? If I want, if I know at 4.30, I want to go to the Lakers game, I'll just go online and get them and I'll pay, even if it's more than the tickets, it's still better than being on the hook for this giant season ticket payment, right? So that's changing sports right now and people don't even realize it yet. And it's a little similar to the food thing with the restaurants, right? Where people it's might very, have been- very similar, very right? similar. People are just less likely to go out. It's it's bigger commitment, bigger hassle, and they don't want to do it. And people are going out, but they're going to restaurants that are tried and true. And there's less, you know, let's go to this new restaurant with a chef that is doing cool, interesting things. You know, that's just not happening as much, you know, but I think comfortable, if your people are going to go out to eat, like, at least from what I know in New York, they're neighborhood restaurants that never had that sort of busyness before, right? Because now it's like, hey, I can just go downstairs and that's okay. And that happens a lot more frequently. But say LA, which is more like a a city suburb type of thing, I I really wonder what the future of dining is going to look like, as you say, when if you're going to go to a restaurant, it's got to be something that's experiential, that's fun, that you know is going to deliver because it's a lot of work getting people together now. For our groups, when we go out to dinner, it's like, man, like where do we go? Because it's got to have right environment. It's got to feel safe. It's got to feel all of these things. And I I wonder what's going to happen. That's my big concern with everything in between. On top of it, you almost have to have a past history with the restaurant. I think people are much less likely to roll the dice on a new restaurant with, if it's like, let's say I'm going out with like me and Kimmel and all of our friends, we try to go out to dinner a couple of times a year. If we're going to do that, I, I think we're way less likely to roll the dice on some restaurant, not knowing, oh, it's this new restaurant. Let's just try it. You're always going to go to the, one of the old standbys. This is why like Republic, which has been, you know, I think over a decade now, it's an LA restaurant for people listening they added like this outdoor seating thing. That's amazing. You can't get, you can't get in there. Like you have to, you know, a couple weeks in advance, you have to get it. Major Domo's like that, hard to get into. Craig's in Beverly Hills, old standby, really hard to get into. And they've added tables and it's still really hard to get into. So I wonder if it's almost like the strong gets stronger and the newer restaurants really hard to kind of grab the foothold. I would, would be my interpretation. There's less ex- experience, like a experiential dining or trying new things out. Like a, like a few months before the pandemic hit, remember we got a bunch of people to drive out to the SGV 
to try a Chinese restaurant, Sichuan restaurant that we had heard was really good. And right. to be honest, was it great? It wasn't great. We were I trying that one on Chen. That's Chen's fault. Yeah. <laughs> and like while eating it, it was one of those meals where you're trying to tell everybody how much better that it actually, you know, in your yeah. mind, it's, it's really good, but it wasn't that good. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't worth driving from the east side, you know, hour plus. And right. If I'm, if I'm seeing you once every three months, that wasn't the dinner we wanted. And that's my concern is, is what happens. And, you know, in the show we do with Hulu, it's uh, talking about what's, going to be eaten at home and cooked at home and businesses from home. So I don't know when I think about the the cultural things that are similar when you're talking about going to sports uh, and, and not going to games as much. I think that's a trend that you can extrapolate and, and, and put on top of food and how, where food is going. And my other thing is I don't think that even the strong restaurants are doing the numbers like they used to. So yeah, uh, this is, this is a wait and see approach, much like I'm sure, you know, with your sources in the NBA, people are like really tentative and, you know, optimistic, cautiously though. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. So Derek Thompson just started this new podcast for us and it's excellent. It's along the same lines of what we were just talking about, like really smart conversations. It's called Plain English. And he did this buy-sell gimmick last week with, with uh, somebody from the Atlantic. And one of the things was athlete athleisure, which I guess is a phrase we're now using. I'm, I, I was the last person <laughs> to get the memo. But it was like, is this, you know, the sales have skyrocketed. Are you buying or selling this trend? And both of them were buying it. Even if the pandemic ends, well, why would this be a trend? Well, because people have been wearing more comfortable clothes the last 21 months and they just kind of like it. You get used to it. It's like, you know what? You know, it wasn't fun like wearing jeans every day and wearing like nice pants. You know what's better? Wearing jogging pants. Right now I'm wearing jogging pants and an Andre the Giant (laughs) t-shirt. I'm wearing the same thing, even though I'm not working out today. Yeah, (laughs) right. So the pandemic ends, am I, is, am I going to be like, oh, cool. I get to wear belts again. Like, no, I'm it's so much more comfortable wearing. So I feel like I'm, this is going to change how I dress regardless of how it ends. I'm going to be like, look like a bum most of the time, unless I'm going out somewhere. And I, I wonder like with restaurants now that we, now that the Postmates 
and um, DoorDash and Caviar, name all the food delivery. Now that those are all better, Uber Eats and all the good restaurants now have some form of delivery. Is that going to be people's new way to like, if they're splurging on a dinner, they're just like, fuck it. Let's get major domo on, you know, whatever food delivery service over just going there. Cause it's easier. Yeah, it is. And that's what I'm trying to figure out again in my head, like doing my poor economist, Dave hat is trying to figure out what that means when people go out to eat, you know, it's businesses will still happen with delivery and so on and so forth. But I mean, I, I guess what I'm trying to figure out are what are the moments where people will go out to dinner? You know, we were talking about this quite a bit on this podcast before the pandemic, right? Experiential dining. And that's where I, I will quadruple down on terms of the trends of where restaurants are going to go and super busy. You're going to see the super, super busy restaurants and places that do like seafood, seafood boils, like boiling crab. Mm. Those places are jamming because you can't cook that shit at home. Barbecue spots are going to be more busy than ever before, right? Because that's food that's you understand that's that's comfort food done at extraordinary high level. And you just said it, you're not going to start a smoker yourself. You feel like you're going to burn down the entire neighborhood. Certain steakhouses, like you can't recreate that steakhouse experience. You're not going to do that at home. Sushi is the one thing that is just crushing both as delivery and on the super high end where it's five to six seats and it's like 500 to $1,000 a person uh, per person. Like those are doing extremely well. So you're sort of seeing the food world shake out, at least with the restaurants, in ways that are extremely similar, but very different than it was before. And I, again, like I'm finding hard, like, difficulty finding comps, right? Like, well, to, movie to is a movie theaters a comp? Cause Derek talked about that too in the pod. And uh, some other people have written that about what happens to movie theaters. Do the smaller ones go away? Are we going to move to a world where you need to be more than a movie theater? You need to be like, a place where you can also get drinks as you're at the movie, where it's like food too, where it's almost like a Hollywood bowl situation where you go in and you have your whole area. Is that where, is yeah, that where the I, next step of movie theaters goes? Probably. I mean, probably, or, 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 or like, uh, movies are going to be somewhat similar to getting like Hamilton tickets or something, going to the Broadway show. And I can see that with food, with my friends that operate restaurants in like tourist destinations or Napa Valley or yeah. something like that. They are so fucking busy, so, right. so busy and booked out year plus in advance. A lot of it are corporate dollars. And that's the one thing that I feel like people are not put into consideration. A lot of restaurants are busy again. Doesn't mean they're busy like they were before because they may be doing one whole turn less, a whole turn being the amount of people that you can move in a dining room. So it's an 80 seat restaurant. You're going to do three turns at dinner. They may be doing two, two and a half. That delta's a lot, right? So. Even if a restaurant looks busy, they may be making less money because things are more expensive than inflation. Anyway, I don't want to talk too much about that. But the one thing that's different is there's not many um, corporate dollars going to these right. restaurants like they were before. But the corporate dollars are going for sure to these destination restaurants, right? That you can have a corporate retreat, right? And bring like a 100 people and you can rent out the restaurant and... That's happening like once a week to these restaurants and they're doing extremely well. So like, so you want like a hotel, so you went like Vegas, a hotel in Dana Point, Napa Valley, San Inez, those type of places. So, all right. 22 year old Dave Chang shows up. What do you do? I don't know. 
I think about this. Yeah, but you have this cool idea for for buns. I wouldn't be in the culinary industry today. No, no, but you, that can't be the answer. I'm saying that can't be you, the answer. You don't you're you don't know that yet. You know you love food. You want to make food. You have an exciting idea for whatever. What do you do? I'd probably try. There's two things. One is I'm always bullish on New York City. I try to find a a, a pretty good deal in Manhattan somewhere, potentially. Or if that's not possible, and, and I know things are not cheap there, they're, they're in crazy expensive. I would go to the middle of nowhere, some tertiary town or city, and I would. That's where I would set up shop because I believe you can have a successful business and create your name anywhere. You know. So you're um, like ten. You're ten minutes outside of Milwaukee. Yeah, or just choose Milwaukee itself. Right. Everything's on the table now. You don't have to be in a major city. That that's for sure. And I. What probably, about? What about work for a famous chef, work at a famous New York restaurant, and then quit and do like a 13-post Twitter thread about it and then see what happens? You wouldn't, <laughs> <that> wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't be a strategy? I, pro- I probably might do that, too, if I was 22 <laughs> years old, right? So I, I, I don't know. I don't know, man. Things, things, are, things are going to unfold, whether I like it or not. But I, I do think that going out to dinner is going to be a, a super special event. and. I don't know. Well, can I, I mean, tell you what? Can I tell you what twenty-two-year-old Dave Chang would have done? What's that? I think he would have done it exactly the same way you did it. I think he would have absolutely decided, "Fuck this, I'm doing this," and it would have been the exact same arc. I don't know if it would have worked as well, but I think he would have done it. He would have been like, "This is going to work. I'm doing this." The fact that it wasn't working for other people would have made you want to do it more. It is possible, but I will say, having spent time in LA, if I twenty-two-year-old Dave Chang was born and raised in Los Angeles instead of Northern Virginia, I would have nothing to say because it's so easy being Asian here. There's no resistance. I, I can get anything I want food wise. Everyone is sort of uh, Asian proficient in terms of food knowledge. Like I, I, I wouldn't have anything to say. And it's I, so and funny, I, and both I really you and I, you and I, one of our big regrets is not just moving out here when we were like 24. We'd be, I think a lot happier. <laughs> I, it definitely would have been more interesting. I don't know. I don't know if it would have worked out as well for me. I, maybe it would have, but I just wish I had done it. I had some friends I had one friend that had a friend that did it. I had another friend that just said, fuck it and went to San Francisco. And another friend that said, fuck it and went to Portland. And I was jealous of them the whole time. And I, but I was too scared to go anywhere. I mean, things have worked out pretty good for you. Though, Bill. No, I know, but I'm just saying, I wish I hadn't been such a coward. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's no, that's... it was when I, I moved out. It's funny. It was 19 years ago, like last week. I moved out and like a week later was Thanksgiving because I moved out to write for a Kimmel show. And I, so I spent Thanksgiving here. I didn't want to fly all the way back because I just got here. So I had a couple of friends. The Patriots were playing, I think the Lions at 930 in the morning. And it was like 81 degrees. And we went and got bagels at like 8.30. And it was like already hot out. And the Patriots are about to come on. I was like, what the fuck is going on here? I was like, how did I not live here sooner than this? This is amazing. Uh, And that was it. I was never leaving after that. There's no way you're moving back to New England. No. One day? One day? No chance. No. There's 10% of me that just wants to go back when I'm like 60 and try to see if I could win the local Boston sports radio and have the highest show. (laughs) <laughs> I have thought about that. Like as like a last, last act, just come in uh, out of nowhere and just try to have like the number one drive time show. Cause I feel like I could do that even maybe when I'm 70, but that's the only thing, that's the only thing I've thought of. But then I feel like I could do that. Maybe maybe I don't have to live in Boston and do that. 
it is inspirational to see how you started. I mean, that's another thing is <laughs> when people see what you've done and what you've created, it often seems like, oh, that just happened. And Bill just, it was handed to Bill. Like he did it with like no, no help. Quite frankly, quite frankly. Well, they say that about they say that about everybody, though, right? Anytime somebody does some stuff, they're always like, "Oh, well, it's it always like." <laughs> I mean, there was good timing. You were entering like the golden age era for New England sports. I mean, who would have known? See, I feel that like I had team- terrible timing. I, I feel like I I wish I had been like three years younger as it was happening because I it was like I was like Kurt Warner. I was like twenty nine year old, twenty nine year old at his first start. No, but they, the internet, because I had like, you know, a couple years there in the mid nineties where it was just like, there was no hope. You just think like, I want to write a sports column. I have no path to get there. What am I going to do? And you, you know, I think I'm, I probably wasn't the only one who thought about quitting. I'm, I'm sure there are people who quit that were really good. That was how many years you've been doing podcasts now? You were one of the very first. Yeah, that was 07. So this uh, 2022 will be my 15th year. That's insane. What, how did you even like, how did you even upload your podcast and how did you do any of that stuff back then? It was probably just you, right? I saw it on our website. There was, I think it was Danny Ainge was being interviewed by Mark Stein or somebody and you clicked on it and it started playing and I'm like, what's that? So I started sending emails and it was about the 2007 draft. It was that spring. And they were like, oh, it's a podcast. I'm like, I, can I have one? How do I get one? And they just mailed me this equipment and then I had to um, kind of call into Bristol so I had to like connect to some server. I've told this story before, but the second one I ever did was with Corolla who came over to my house, but I only had one microphone. So he had to call in. So he had to call in from my house phone and he was walking around in my, on my driveway as I was in my little office talking to him because we couldn't do it in the same room. So, and that's how ESPN, I mean, they, they never spent $1 on any of this stuff. So even eight years in, I was still calling into the engineer. They were still compressing the files. So I knew like when starting the ringer, I was like, well, the one thing I know is we can, our podcast can sound way better than theirs. So we bought, you know, we use like nice microphones and good recorders. And we actually, we've always cared about that. And I think that was a huge advantage. You listen to the ESPN podcast now, they sound terrible. So, (laughs) you know, it's like little stuff like that, where you're just like, where are the, where are the advantages Um, with the pod? The first couple of years was great because almost everybody I did an interview pod with, it was like the first time they'd ever been on a podcast. So they were always like, that was amazing. Wow. We just talked for an hour. I forgot where I was. And now it's like, everybody's done a million. It's not the same kind of, it's very rarely you get somebody who hasn't been on at least 10 podcasts already, you know? I mean, what was crazy is when I joined to do the podcast on the ringer, there was not that many podcasts. But like no. a year into it, it was just an explosion. Like, is this well, going to stop? More, we didn't have the resources behind the scenes. We've had just for the ringer in the last year, I think we've doubled the amount of shows we've done because that was one of the reasons we want to go to Spotify. We we wanted, we knew it would make it easier to find talent, find behind the scenes people, but also continue to try to make more stuff. You know, when you're on your own, it's really hard for a bunch of different reasons, but no, I, I think we're we're hitting a saturation point. There's over, I think there's 3.2 million podcasts now. Sure. And it's a little like what happened with blogs in 2006, seven, when all of a sudden everybody had a blog and there was just a million things on the internet. And it was like, how do you, how do you stand out? You know, and then people would figure out how to stand out. It's kind of what's happening now with pods, I think. And the difference is there's only so many, 
so much time in the day to listen to a podcast, which is why as we keep innovating with this stuff, I think like, you know, doing two hour pods and stuff like that makes a lot less sense to me than it did a couple of years ago. Do you feel that the next iteration of the podcast, and this is stuff that we've been talking about, is the video component with the pod? Yeah, I think I think that's a huge advantage for us because Spotify has this video player that they've been working on for a year and a half. And I think that's one of the ways the ringer can stand out. You know, you're just looking for competitive advantages now. We have this video player that really potentially could be awesome and a huge advantage for us. And the ability for somebody to listen to a pod and if they want to see the people, they just have to look at their phone and it's there. It's pretty, it's pretty good. Nobody else has that. So I think for this stuff, especially the stuff you're thinking about, you've had so much success with the Instagram videos and just, you can just start a video of like, Hey, I made Hugo Mac and cheese. <laughs> all these people will watch it. So it's like, all right, how did how did, what does that look like as a video pod? And that's some of the stuff that we've been trying to figure out, which I think, you know, we're kind of uniquely positioned to figure out. Yeah. And without talking too much about it, I think that would be the focus of the next 250 episodes for us is besides talking about practical, pragmatic things that make food fun and relatable is, is figuring out how we're going to deliver that content. And I think, you know, when I sat down with Bill, there's a lot of great ideas that we're going to bring to you very soon, but one of which is integrating the visual component because food is not something that is easy to just talk about. I feel like it's something yeah. you also need to see if you can't eat it. And uh, I'm excited to see what, what what's possible. Yeah, I'm sure it'll get to a point where you could do a podcast and at like the 37 minute mark, when you're talking about some dish, for two minutes, that video could come on the video pod and then disappear. And then it's just back to the audio and stuff like that, where it's kind of more immersive. That's what the thing, the one thing I've learned over the last 25 years is like shit always changes. You have to be ready for it. Like we did Grantland. It was designed for desktop computers. And within a year there was iPads and within four years there were iPhones. And then everybody was reading on a device and not a computer. It's like, all right, you got an audible. Nobody wants a 10,000 word you know, 10,000 word essays anymore. It's, it gets a little harder when they're reading on their phone. So you got to move, you got to shift. And I think with pods as be the same thing. And But what do you think that is though? You know, the next, next iteration of the podcast, if it's not necessarily visual, maybe you think it is visual. And is it, is it five, seven minute podcast? Is it, what's going to happen? That I don't know. Cause like, think about TikTok three years ago. We, we didn't know, I didn't know what TikTok was. And if you had told me there's gonna be this new app they sample music and most of the people that succeeded them are doing like dumb dances or these quickly edited things. And they're really goofy, but they're fun and they're lighthearted and it's going to become a phenomenon. You'd have been like, well, that's stupid. That's not going to happen. And then it happened. So with audio, I think, you know, live audio, people got excited about with Clubhouse. I was dubious just for the record, but Clubhouse had a moment. It was like Clubhouse. The next dominant, I was like, well, it's a pandemic. Are we sure? Like, is how do we know <laughs> a year from now? Like, I still think podcasts are going to beat live audio. And I think I'm right. But I also think live audio is important, which is why Spotify is involved in it. Because you have these moments where if something happens, you want to react to something. Live audio is still huge. It's basically like the evolutionary radio. So I think you can have both. But there was a moment there when people were like, Clubhouse is going to replace podcasts. It's like, no, it's not. Stop. It's not happening. And we've seen that borne out. I'm so happy that Clubhouse is not happening <laughs> anymore. Dude, nobody really uses it, right? Yeah, it, it 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 was a quick fad. 
it, they did it like a Soho house type thing where it was like hard to get a membership and that was smart. And once it kind of opened up and then it became super hard to police, which you could have predicted in five seconds. There was a great, somebody did a great Twitter thread about it right as Clubhouse was hot. He's an investor and he did this long Twitter thread about here's what's going to happen to Clubhouse. And he fucking called it. Like you go back and read this thread. He nailed like every piece of it. He was right. It was like, this is a fad. People are going to get bored of it. This is not the future of anything. And he just was right. But I still think live audio has its place. I think it's, I think as it gets better and better, it's cool. Like you could start a live audio right now and you could go on green room and be like, all right, I'm talking spare ribs with whoever. And all these people would have this chance to interact with you. That's a cool thing. Like that's podcast can offer that. I just don't know how that replaces podcasts. It's still the chance to, for, to have an edited, really smart conversation or really funny or whatever is still going to win over like somebody shooting the shit on a live audio thing. Well, you know, another reason why I wanted to have you is to talk about what, you know, the ringer major Dome media is going to be able to offer everybody. And I think, you know, we, we've talked a little bit about what we have in store for podcasts, not just the DC show, but a few other ideas. And we just sort of like talk about ideas like having some version of Favreau's dinner for five. You know, that right. would be awesome if we could figure out how to do that. That would be a podcast video type of thing. I, I, I don't know, but I'm excited to explore all those things and, and really pick Bill's brain a lot more than we have in the past. Well, is Favreau available? Because Favreau and Cho should have should definitely have like some sort of buddy cop cooking show. I don't know. I don't know if we can get him. Favreau can't just be the only white dude with a Korean dude in every show. It, it, <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> no, I just I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking they have this weird dynamic where it's like you guys are really close friends. How did this happen? I, I don't I understand mean, Bill, it. I mean, Dave Cho has that dynamic with everybody. That's true. He does. That's fair. It's, it was just pure delight with both of them. They really, I know. they just, I don't know. I, I was jealous for you because, you know, you're supposed to be the apple of Cho's eye. I don't <laughs> like when he's, when he likes another guy that much, to be honest. <laughs> do you think, what do you think the probability is we're going to get Cho for a culinary food podcast? Uh, you think the chances are above, percentage of over 50%, 30%? What are the odds? As you know, Cho is one of my seven or eight favorite human beings. I think regularity and reliability are concerns. They're red flags. Um, <laughs> you can think you're going to dinner with them. And then he's like, Oh, I can't go. I'm in Egypt. That was an actual text last week. Yeah. I can't go. I'm in Egypt it was an actual thing. He sent to us unironically in a text last week. I can't, I'm working out three times a day. <laughs> and I got to get up four 30 in the morning. What? Yeah. I'm, tra I'm training for a triathlon. What? Wait, <laughs> what? You're, you're, you're doing what? So, um, I think, getting him to commit to a schedule. Now, on the other hand, Cho enjoys attention and making um, waves. So I think that would be a good thing for him. And he's really good at playing off people. He's so and I good. do think I really liked his FX show. I thought it was really good. I wish there had been more than, what did they end up running for? There's four. But I, I just thought that was a really good show. I think he's, there's something about him when you talk to him, you just start telling him stuff. He's like, I don't want to say therapist. I don't even know what to describe. I, I've seen it. It's not just me. It's other people. You just start like opening up to him. He like, uh, he he un, unpeels you kind of like an onion. It's weird. Because he's been in so many hours, thousands of hours of, of therapy and rehab. He, that's his like mission in life, it seems. 
right now, but you know, he's, he's happier than ever before. But you know what it is with Cho? He's, he's like the most authentic person. I think I know. He's just like, he's like, this is me. I'm not ashamed of anything about myself. I'm happy to discuss whatever. I'm happy to ask you any question that might make somebody else uncomfortable, but I'll ask it. And that's just who he is. He just doesn't care. Which is why I feel like if we utter this and make it a reality and peer pressure Dave to agree to this, which he has actually said he's interested in doing, you had a great idea of just- We have the the idea. We have the idea. Dinner therapy. Dinner therapy with Dave Cho. That's that's one of the things that we want to put on the air. We just need to get the main star, uh, Dave Cho, to to agree to it. But Dave does right now is in Egypt. Yeah, but Dave does love when people like want him to do something. So if all of you people are listening, I think you can help make this reality by telling him he should have his own podcast. Well, he's any show you've done on Netflix or Hulu. He's always been a welcome addition. I still get people ta- bringing up the, uh, I just forget how many people have Netflix. The when we went to the Outback Steakhouse, I still have people <laughs> mention that to me. Hey, I saw you and uh, Dave and Dave at some steakhouse. Or I saw you at some steakhouse. Some guy pulled out a knife. And it's just Netflix, just tens and tens of millions of people that just watch the program. It's pretty amazing. Well, we will uh, hope that we have that. We should actually do another dinner at Outback Steakhouse. That was actually pretty good, right? I want to do the net. The what's the one? What's the one where there's chef cooks? Uh, uh, um, I'm blank. Benihana. 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 I'm all do in. Benihana? I've been to Benihana in like three, four years, and every time I've gone, I'm always like, "We are doing this every six months," and then I never go for another right. four years. That's so that's. I, am I wrong on Benihana? Is no. it, it's, when has it I not love been Benihana. fun? Everybody loves so Benihana. Good. I don't know why I haven't started my own Benihana knockoff chain. Maybe that's coming next, but that's going to be the next dinner. Listen, you did the ramen or your version of the ramen, which changed my son's life and he eats it all the time. And it's, it's always, he always thanks you. Ben's really eating the Momofuku noodles. I mean, he's a growing, growing man. The Momofuku noodles are fucking lights out. Those are really good. <laughs> like, honestly, I, I, I say this not as a plug. Those are really good. You took something that everybody had a low kind of expectation for. It's just like, ah, ramen. It's fine. You just like ramen. It's it's good. You don't really think about it. And you actually made it like taste delicious. Appreciate it, Bill. Um, listen, thank you. We'll have you on again soon. I'll come on for 500 if I'm still alive. I'm here. 500 years. Thanks, Bill. All right. Good to see you.